We honestly just don't know how much do we actually need to fend off all of these potential attacks. It's kind of like with physical security, you know, you could spend $100,000 every month on physical security and someone might still figure out a way to kill you. It's just a, a tricky thing with security in general. This is absolutely not unique to Bitcoin. It's just insanely difficult to model for. Hello there. How are you all doing? Did you have a good weekend? Did you get a chance to relax? Did you take some Bitcoin time off? I hope you did. Now, I have just arrived in New York and I've got a massively hectic week ahead. Loads of shows we're doing this week. We're making 15 shows a week, which is going to be a very hectic schedule. So a big shout out to Danny for getting this all in place. I can't wait to get it started. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today on the show, I've got Sam Wooters. Now, We've been wanting to get Sam on the show for a while. He's an analyst over at River Financial, and he recently dropped this amazing report on the future of Bitcoin mining called What Bitcoin Mining Could Look Like at One Zeta Hash. So we've been talking to Sam for a while, and after he dropped this report, Daniel was like, come on, Pete, we need to make this show. So Sam was over in Nashville when we were there. Anyway, he was there for the Bitcoin Mining Summit at Bitcoin Park. So we got him over, and we recorded with him, covered all what was in his report. So I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions about this, you can reach out to me. Just a couple of notes. As I said, I'm in New York, and tomorrow... We're going to be watching the live stream of Rail Bedford at 2.45 over at PubKey. And then also on Thursday at PubKey, we've got a live WBD event. We're going to be recording a live podcast with Jun Seth, audience Q&A afterwards, and then we're going to hang out. There's a few tickets available. If you want to get one of them, head over to whatbitcoindid.com. All right, if you want to get in touch, you know what you've got to do. The email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Sam, how are you, man? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Welcome to What Bitcoin Did. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have you. Uh, so I have not read the entirety of the report because it's long. Yes. <laughs> it is a monster. But we will include it in the show notes and let everybody read it. Uh, Danny's been through it in detail and he's briefed me. Um, but before we get into this, let's introduce you to the audience. Tell them about yourself. Where you work, what do you do, what your favorite What Bitcoin did show is? Do you support Rail Bedford? Uh, I do. I was one of the sort of the pre-orders of a, a shirt and I've been following this course all along. So it's been, it's been exciting to watch. Yeah, I'm Sam. I'm a Bitcoin research analyst at River Financial, which is a US-based uh, Bitcoin-focused company. Um, my backstory into Bitcoin is also, I think, somewhat unusual. Like sort of the short version of it is me getting schooled on hyperinflation by Venezuelan uh, people as when I was a teenager. So uh, I can I can dive into that a bit more if you're curious. Yeah, I mean, what uh, did you go to Venezuela? No. Uh, so this was through an online game that I played. I uh, started playing it when I was uh, 12 years old, uh, just together with friends, and eventually all of them kind of moved on. But uh, this game had an economy in it, uh, just like any other economy, I guess, which is also what I realized later on. Like, actually, I know more about economics than I realized. Uh, but I would trade on this game. That's kind of why I stuck around. And I sort of realized, like, I'm, I don't think I'm great at a lot of things, but that is something I was actually quite good at uh, to the extent where I could earn money from it because the money you earned in the game, you could exchange for real-life money. So that's one of the two ways I got in touch with Bitcoin for the first time, where these people who would uh, buy and sell this currency for real-life currency, they needed a payment method to be able to do this. 
And uh, it's always like problematic with PayPal, with credit cards, with bank transfers, because you're buying a virtual good and there's actually no proof that you have anything. There's no package delivered at your door or anything. So lots of people would use chargebacks to get their money back and there was lots of fraud in there. And alternatives were things like Western Union, but that's, as everyone knows, really expensive. So Bitcoin started popping up there for the first time as a, uh, something you could use to exchange the money that you had in the game for real life money. So that's when I first started seeing it. And I was trading like crazy on this game, trying to earn money, but the economy in the game started to tank because lots of people were setting up these really large bot farms. So they would just run thousands and thousands of accounts that were gathering resources in the game to then try to sell it for like $10 a day, $20 a day uh, to make money. And after a while, I started realizing like this is actually devaluing, like I'm trying to trade and make as much profit as I can, but this is devaluing what I'm trying to earn. So some, some early lessons as a teenager on sort of how money and economies work. But then I started wondering like, who are these people? Are they just people like me or like, they're, but they're just smarter, like setting this up at home. And then at some point, like started asking around and trying to figure this out, like who are these people? And apparently quite a lot of them were Venezuelans because for them earning $10 a day is life-changing money because many of them typically earn significantly less. Um, so that's when I really started diving into like, okay, like, you know, why are they making so little money? How does that work? Why is that so different from uh, Western Europe where I'm from? Um, and that really kind of started to uh, get me into just learning more about economics in general. When was this? Uh, so this is like basically from when I was 16 to 22-ish or so. I'm 30 now, so this has been eight years or so okay. ago when I just went through that whole journey and first got into Bitcoin. So I've been into Bitcoin, I guess it's like 10 years since this year. Wow, so you're pretty early. Yeah, relatively. <laughs> but just like, I, I feel like I was always going to find out about it because me playing that game was sort of a result of moving to an area where I was a bit like, let's say less welcomed by my peers. I moved from the Netherlands to Belgium when I was a teenager. And you just like, you have a different accent. It's kind of like in the UK, if you're from one city or another, people kind of look at you weird. So I just spent a lot of time by myself, spent more time gaming as a result. And uh, like, I, yeah, I was always going to play that game because everyone my age played it at the time. Uh, what was the game called? Uh, it was called RuneScape. So okay. it's like you had World of Warcraft. Everyone knows that one. Yeah. It was the biggest one. And this was like the second biggest MMO like that. Um, so that's the one I played. And yeah, I was probably always going to play it because all of my friends played it. And I just kind of stuck around for the economic thing. And then when I got into Bitcoin, I actually realized that pretty much everything I was seeing there was stuff I had already experienced as a teenager in the game. Like people just trying to invent other currencies, so to speak, like trying to make other things really valuable. Uh, all of the scams, all of the pyramid schemes, all of the pump and dumps, the manipulation, I've like literally seen all of it. And then when I got into Bitcoin, I was like, like, hold on, how is this possible that it works the exact same way here? Like, surely these people are way more sophisticated than me as a naive teenager, just not really realizing like how, you know, like these are also just people, but I just had this kind of inherent belief that people who are like really into these financial assets, they must be far more sophisticated. But apparently uh, that wasn't really the case. Scammers gonna scam. Yeah, for sure. Wow, okay. I mean, I've been to Venezuela. Yeah, it's so I've uh, heard. a very interesting place a very cool place uh in terms of the people and the food um despite everything they're living through people are great and uh but i saw some of the really weird shit that goes on uh 
been in a hotel and asking for a beer and it's like a tiny little bottle. I mean, we're, I don't know if you've had this, but we're, we're experiencing shrinkflation yep. quite significantly in the UK at the moment. I'm noticing it with a lot of things. Like yep. it could be a, a milkshake that my kids used to get, you know, that's significantly smaller or, you know, packs of crisps or sweets or anything you get from the supermarket. Yeah, especially from the supermarket. They just change the change the amount and a lot of people never notice. They don't notice, but uh, the way I saw it in Venezuela was crazy. Like the, the beer I got was tiny. It was like this tiny weird mm-hmm. little bottle, same with bottles of water. But lots of other things like in the uh, airport bathrooms, there was no soap to wash your hands, which you would expect at any airport, but that yeah. didn't exist. On the way out, I uh, saw so the other side, I went to buy a pack of M&Ms and it was like $6 for a pack of M&Ms. It was crazy, weird stuff. But uh, we went, the way we experienced inflation in the UK, Holland, Belgium, US, uh, I know it's been high this year, but generally it's quite insidious. It's yep. slow. It really is. And it tricks you. Uh, in a place like Venezuela, no, it just fucks you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So we're, we're going to talk about hashing. Yeah. Which we've not really touched on in the 600 episodes we've made in detail like I think we will today. And I think this subject is going to be really interesting because uh, we've had a lot of people come on the show talking about uh, different things they want to use mining for. Uh, Some environmental things, for example, landfill, uh, using on landfill sites uh, to flare off the methane. Or people talk about using it to stabilize grids. And I've always had this like thing in the back of my mind. I've talked about it with Danny a few times. I've always had this thing where I was like, uh, is there enough hashing available to support all these ideas? And I just don't believe there are. So I was always like, well, all these ideas are great, but if the network doesn't demand enough hash to support them, what actually happens? And, you know, if there's whatever reason, a drop in price and therefore yeah. a drop in the demand for hash, for hash rate... What actually happens to these projects where we've attempted to stabilize grids? Does it go offline? So there's lots of things like that. I've like had this curiosity in the back of my mind. And then when Danny put this in front of me, I was like, okay, well, maybe maybe Sam can answer this. Yeah, a little bit, I guess. Uh, because a lot of the things you've mentioned, like I've, I've been a longtime listener of the show and like I've, I've heard all of these episodes with Adam Wright, with, with Troy Cross, et cetera, yeah. uh, with Sean Connell, who I also asked to review the report uh, and Daniel Batten as well, who does a lot of the methane like analysis, um, and and it's a really good point that you raise. And like this is also one of the conclusions in the report. It's like all of these things are really cool, but mining's just not big enough to do all of it. As excited as people are about it, that's not necessarily a bad thing because I'm of the opinion that every bit helps. I think like you know, there's lots of different initiatives, and it's an interesting marketplace of ideas, and some of them you know, will get a lot of traction and others will just turn out to be less interesting and get competed out of the market. Uh, it's a bit of a pity for the people who are just very passionate about trying to sort of integrate these systems and make it work. But um, yeah, that's just the reality of, of, of how hyper-competitive mining is in general, I suppose. Um, I do see like there's a lot of debate around like, okay, mining uses a lot of energy and then we can create this narrative around it of we can use a lot of these kind of mechanisms to like justify is not the right word, but to make it more accessible for people who think it's really wasteful. Uh, but instead we can actually make it less wasteful 
to just the environment in general and and it's it's a tricky subject it's like tricky to get people over that hump because they need to learn a lot about how energy works in general similar to how people say with bitcoin you need to learn how finance works how money works uh if you really want to understand a lot about bitcoin too and in a similar way with mining this is a whole debate around like how you know all of these use cases they sound really cool but how do we actually get this working in practice and I'm very much of the, like, I try to have a very pragmatic approach to all of it to, and just make it very tangible for people because otherwise it just stays at this high level. Like, yeah, eventually we'll have this transition where all of the mining is going to be these cool types of projects. But if you're just coming into the space and you're just hearing like, yeah, we're, we're going to do all of this crazy stuff with mining in the future, it just raises tons of questions. You're just wondering like, you know, how, how realistic is this? It sounds really fascinating, but especially if you've been a listener of the show, I think, and you hear about all of these cool initiatives, it's like, how how feasible is it that, you know, in 10, 20 years time, we'll actually see that a sizable portion of all of the mining uses these types of methods and we're just totally transitioning in that direction. So, uh, you know, they, they, they sound like really cool ideas, like the OTEC stuff as well. It's yeah. fascinating. Uh, but yeah, you're just also of, of the sort of perspective of, it's also intimidating. It's, this is These are like long projects to convince people to, to get this up and running, to for them to start using it, for all of the economics to work out as well. I think there's tons of work that needs to be done there. Because as your like your original question, I guess is like, you know, how is this going to be financially feasible? Is there enough hash rate out there to make all this stuff work? And if everyone from their separate angles kind of maps this out as you know, like oh, if we do OTEC mining, then you know the economics will work out. And at the same time, the methane guys are like, yeah, if we do methane-based mining, then all of it will work out. And then maybe all of them find each other sort of in the middle in let's say 20 years time from now and they're like oh yeah we didn't like necessarily keep all of your ambitions in mind either so uh then there's only so much for everyone yeah there's this big important dependent which is what is happening with bitcoin price yeah. issuance rate yeah absolutely well let's let's get into it so uh i mean look you said you're a regular listener of the show so the next question is probably to be expected but if we're going to be discussing this we should have you explain what hashing is mm -hmm. that uh component of mining just for anyone who doesn't understand what hash explain what hashing is and how it works yeah sure yeah it's important to do uh also have this in the report a little section on it because for a lot of people mining is just this like the the explanation you hear most frequently is mining is this way of doing complex calculations to process transactions on the blockchain and that's sort of a I call it a lazy explanation mm. because it's easy, it's very accessible, like, okay, complex calculations. But essentially what hashing is, it's taking a string of data and transforming it. That can be anything, that data. It could be like all of our names put together. It could be every street name in the city put together. It can be anything you can imagine, but you use an algorithm that transforms it in, in a one-way street, essentially, to a fixed string of letters and numbers. And this is a form of cryptography. The other more well-known form of cryptography that is related to it is encryption. So in encryption, it's two-way. You can encrypt something, give someone the key to decrypt it, and then they can figure out what the original mes message was. But in hashing, you can't do that kind of transformation back. You can only just put in the data, and then you get that fixed string of information out. So what the Bitcoin protocol does in essence, is it, it tells the network, like, I want someone, like anyone who is mining out there, I want you to figure out a hash that matches this kind of sort of difficulty, which the Bitcoin protocol sets based on how many people are participating. And then everyone starts searching like crazy with like 
and I say everyone, but it's good for non-technical people to imagine these are just the computers that these people operate. They're just trying to search for that sort of winning lottery ticket. And then the first one to find it gets to add, uh, like they create a block, they broadcast that to the network. And then everyone in the network can verify, like, is this actually correct? Did they find the correct hash? And uh, if that's the case, then that block gets added to the blockchain and that is synchronized all around the world. So hashing is, in essence, it's a way to help uh, sort of coordinate the entire network to find a specific hash that sort of meets a certain difficulty uh, set by the system. And that difficulty ensures that, you know, even if half of the miners uh, sort of disappear over the course of the next year, or if the number of miners triples over the next year, that on average, it will ensure that the Bitcoin network is always pretty stable. So every roughly 10 minutes, there will be a new block of transactions, and it makes the system very predictable. So it kind of automatically adjusts the difficulty to uh, account for that. So it's really important for people to keep in mind that we don't have more miners in Bitcoin to uh, process more transactions. That is not the point. And there's very often in the mainstream media these misconceptions around like, oh, you know, the, the amount of energy keeps increasing. And if everyone in the world would use Bitcoin today and we just extrapolate that number out, then it's going to use up all of the energy in the world. And it's just total nonsense. That's a complete misunderstanding of how it works. All the extra miners do is raise the total security level of the entire history of the blockchain. So these miners, they, like, they're not even really just processing transactions. It's not like you're paying somewhere with a card and then a terminal is processing the transaction. Whenever you add a block to the Bitcoin blockchain, you're also simultaneously securing the entire history. So people mix up, like the journalists, if, if, if you can call them that in that context, they will often sort of mix up the two and say, you know, if you're, if you're doing a payment uh, on Bitcoin, then essentially like this is the energy cost that was involved in that, but no, you're actually like, there's a security cost involved as well. And, and those two things are mixed together, but even understanding that, that takes a bit of time for the average person to get. And, and why this method of hashing for securing the network? Why was that a good design option? Uh, from my perspective, it's because it's so predictable because you like hashing is like, it's been around for a long time. It's I think one of the most uh, well-known examples that is used for is passwords. A lot of people don't actually realize this, but when you enter a password into a service, your computer will hash the password and then it sends the hashed version of it to the server uh, of the application or the website or whatever it is that you're using. And they will check like, does this hash, hash, hash match, match the one that we initially put into our database? Okay. And if that's the case, then you know you can log in. If it's not the case, then they don't know exactly what password you put in because then they could figure out like, okay, can, you know, can we hack some of your other accounts then? So hashing in general has just been around for a long time. And this is also something you hear often in Bitcoin, like don't, you know, don't roll your own cryptography. They yeah. often say like, don't try to invent your own constructions that have never been tested. So uh, this is not something that's novel to Bitcoin in any way. It's just a way of using hashing as a tool to coordinate the entire network. Um, and yeah, it's like, it's rather lightweight. It's very easy to verify if a hash is correct or not. It's just so difficult to reverse engineer it, like pretty much impossible for a good hashing alg algorithm today. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, Danny, do you have a chart for the hash history? Uh, yes. Yeah. Let's take a look at the history of the hash rate. Hash rate. Yeah, you mentioned uh, it's a long report. And indeed, I try to put in lots of graphs and uh, images to make it a bit more tangible for people who just like to scroll through yeah. and sort of see like what's going on here. How long did it take you to do it? Uh, the total report was about one and a half month. 
but yeah, it just shows like over the past years, it's been uh, growing like crazy in general. Yeah. So this one, it's it's on a logarithmic uh, graph because uh -huh. it kind of shows the, the different eras of mining that we've gone through where initially, you know, in the early years, 2009 and the bottom left of the graph, that's where uh, mining started. And it was just with CPUs, with computers. But then very quickly, people started figuring out, like, you know, if we use graphics cards, then we can mine a lot faster. There's this brief period of the FPGA miner. And then ASIC started emerging in 2013. But then you're really just at, uh, like, in the, at the terahash per second level. So that's a trillion hashes per second. So that's good to put into context what I was talking about with those hashes. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, today, the Bitcoin network is doing uh, 250, uh, what is that now? We're, I think we're talking quintillion hashes per second, I believe it is. So, like, you know, just incomprehensibly <laughs> large insane. numbers. Um, but that's what they're doing every single second. There's so many calculations being done uh, to try to find that lucky number for the lottery. And, and these um, mega hash, giga hash, tera hash, peta hash, exa hash, zeta hash. Where do these names come from? Is this a Bitcoin thing or is this... No, it's not a Bitcoin thing. So this is, uh, yeah, I've got an overview of it here as oh, well. Okay. So, okay. so this is just using computing in general because you have your, you know, your gigabytes of storage. But in terms of storage, we never really got past terahashes so far for consumer purposes. Uh, terabytes, petabytes, yeah. exabytes. But, but I'm guessing like a, a data centers at Google and Amazon and stuff, they might be looking at some bigger, some of the bigger ones in there. What's after Zeta? I thought you might ask. The, yeah. Apparently, Yota, and I don't believe there's anything bigger on the scale that I've seen anyway, uh, but that might be wrong. Who would who gets to come up with a new name if we get I have them? no clue. What, what would you call the next one? The, the Hash Council. Um, I would call the next one the, the Jezza Hash. <laughs> we'll go with the Jezza Hash. I don't know, Danny, what do you think? Good hash? Pete's Good hash is already taken, isn't it? <laughs> Good hash? Good hash. Danny Hash? <laughs> Okay, cool. So in your report, you're talking about us uh, looking to reach Zeta hash. You yep. see that as a, a goal. Um, why is this important? So uh, actually, to, to correct that, like I don't necessarily see it as a goal. I tried to look at the future of mining, okay. and then it was an interesting sort of goalpost to look at. Uh, you could say, like, what does mining look like in 10 years or in 20 years? But that's, some people would call that fiat thinking, I suppose. Uh, but it, it's just looking at it from a different perspective of like what do we look at in, in Bitcoin's uh, terms or, or what is commonly uh, named in, by the mining industry. So a Zeta hash is then sort of the next point in time. And then you can kind of look at, you know, how long is it going to take to reach that? Is it at all feasible to reach it? Uh, I definitely mentioned in the report as well, like we don't, we don't need to reach it. I think like if, if Bitcoin doesn't reach a Zeta hash, that is not a bad thing. That doesn't mean Bitcoin failed by any means. It's just a way of looking at the future and, and sort of figuring out like what might the mining industry look like at that point. And uh, yeah, there's lots of things that you can keep in mind there. So in this graph that Danny is sharing, uh, I've kind of plotted out, like if you take mining from when it became pretty serious, when you started getting uh, a lot more ASICs that were quite efficient, so that's in like 2016 or so, then if you plot out the growth rates since those years, then you start seeing, uh, you know, if we would grow at the rate we have since 2016, then we would reach a Zeta hash if we kept up that rate by like 2046 here, you can see on the graph. But every year, sort of that rate of growth has been speeding up other than 2020, which was a bit of an outlier there. Um, 
But every year it's been getting faster. And if you look at the 2022 rate, if we keep growing the way the hash rate has grown in 2022, then we reach a Zeta hash around 2033 or so, which is significantly earlier than sort of the earlier rates that were projected. And what kind of uh, percentage increase is, is a Zeta hash from now? So that's so good question. Currently, we're like we've been hovering around 250 to 300 X hash. Okay, so, so about it's a basically X. times four indeed. And it doesn't sound so far off because in general, like a lot of Bitcoin has been like it's about exponentials. People expect really big growth, but there are reasons to believe why like. I think the graph you shared earlier with all of the numbers, uh, Danny, that kind of showed like every one and a half to two years, we went to that next order of magnitude. But uh, yeah, on this one, but this sort of this last jump, that's probably going to take a bit longer. It could be a decade. It could be two decades. It you know, could also be in a couple of years from now. If, like you mentioned earlier, you know, what if the Bitcoin price pumps like crazy and everyone jumps back on mining? Uh, then we could reach it significantly earlier. So the goal of the report is not necessarily to try to have the most accurate prediction of, you know, by what exact date are we going to get to a Zeta hash, but it's more like what's that going to do in terms of uh, some of the, the different chapters that I dive into, like how much mining equipment does this take? Uh, what's the security budget that is needed to finance all of this? It's also not unimportant. You touched on it earlier. And how much energy is all of this going to take? Sort of keeping in mind some of those innovations that you mentioned, like what if we, you know, use flared gas mining? Uh, what if we, what if we don't have any of it either? I also try to look at that perspective because it's important to sort of assume the worst in a way. Um, so those are all like things to dive into to yeah. sort of figure out like what does the future of mining look like? And as um, as new miners come online that become more efficient, they're able to uh, you know, deliver more hashes. Does that mean like the hash rate can go up, but the cost of mining can actually still drop? Yeah, that's possible. And, yeah. and like in some of the projections, I tried to keep this in mind as well. As mining rigs get more efficient, there are also even scenarios where it would be possible that the total energy usage of the network decreases over time but then we need like kind of a crazy rate of innovation a lot of it depends on that like how much more efficient do mining rigs get okay uh, but it is in theory possible uh, so what what leads hash or price it's it's definitely price yeah yeah i think like there's you know there's a, ultimately like that's where the revenue needs to come from that's how people pay for all of this stuff um You'll see periods where, you know, like we've seen over the past year, a lot of mining rigs have got, got gone online, but they were like sort of previously invested in, but it, there's just a long leading time to get that online. Um, and people also look at sort of the, the recent growth that's been there and they're like, surely at, you know, at this current rate, we would get there within a couple of years, but there's been a bit of a period where we're just climbing too high. And uh, yeah, it's just likely that there will be a bunch of corrections in the future. And there's also a part of the report where I try to focus on what are the reasons why we might not get there? Uh, and that's pretty important to consider as well. Okay, well, we will get to that. Uh, probably also, let's explain what the security budget is. Yeah. Yeah, because that's an important factor for some people in mind. Yeah, I think and there's been more discussion around it recently, which I'm happy to see. Uh, so security budget, it's kind of a way of looking at all of this Bitcoin that's being mined. Uh, like how much does all of that add up together over the course of... You know, like the time frame doesn't really matter. It can be a week, can be a year. Uh, but in the report, I use like the yearly budget. And that budget's supposed to pay for all of the miners to be involved, uh, like to keep running, to stay profitable or break even at minimum. And uh, 
that needs to be there because without it, there's just not much of an incentive to secure the network. And in this graph here that we're showing on the screen, uh, it kind of shows like, you know, in the early years, you just don't really see that on uh, the scale of billions of dollars. But then starting from 2014, I think it first touched on about a billion dollars and it kind of started going up. Uh, this graph, it uses the average uh, Bitcoin price for that year. So mm -hmm. like, you know, if miners decide to sell their Bitcoin at the bottom, which you might sometimes see, then that is not accounted for here. But about $9.5 billion uh, in 2022 was a security budget. And then a lot of people have questions around like, you know, is, is that enough? Like, you know, it, should it be more? Is is it better if it's more? If it's Is it secure enough like this? Like, what are we protected against? Does it mean that if someone comes in with $10 billion that they can disrupt the network? There's lots of questions that people have around this stuff. Um, and what I've typically seen in general is that a lot of people say, like, you don't have to worry about this. It's a lot of FUD. Um, but I think it's really important to acknowledge that if you're very much into Bitcoin, you like you might have a good understanding of how this stuff works and you might feel at ease like, you know, it's going to work itself out where like we have like actually disrupting this network is going to cost way more than you see on the screen in terms of uh, billions of dollars because you need to get all the mining equipment. You need to get it online without anyone noticing. Uh, there's just lots of these factors. But if you're not so much into Bitcoin and you just read this headline somewhere yep. in the news or you hear it on Twitter from someone who is trying to pump their own coin and saying like, Bitcoin's not going to be secure in 10 years from now uh, because of like the security budget that's going to plummet, etc. Like once you start talking about that, people get worried because they don't have that deeper understanding of like, you know, what, what can people even do if they have sort of a significant portion of the hash rate? Like, does it just shut Bitcoin down or does it make it insecure, etc.? So I think it's an important topic to talk about a bit more and to not sort of hand wave away like this is going to be okay, guys, don't worry about it. Because a lot of people actually don't take that for an answer, especially investors who come in from an outside perspective. They're not really into Bitcoin. They just see it as part of their portfolio. All it takes for someone like that to sell off their their investment is to just hear a couple of these headlines that say it's not going to be secure in the future. And then if they try to do a bit of research and everyone's just saying, ah, it's going to be fine. This show is brought to you by Casa. Now, whether you've bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person that should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin, it doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it super easy. And getting started is simple. Just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need assistance, it's only a phone call away. And Casa has the best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. And I have been using Casa. I've been using their multi-sig for two years now. I absolutely love it. Now, it is time for you to take financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin. But again, I'm only buying right now. We're hodlers. We've seen the bottom of the market. We've seen this through, right? Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. 
All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today we have Wasabi, who I am using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You do also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently, and with Wasabi 2.0, this is so much easier. So if you want to find out more about this, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W A S A B. I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. It's also interesting looking at this chart just to see the kind of percent of the security budget which is coming from fee rewards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it looks like in 2021, it looks like we probably, well, actually as a percentage, it's probably not as high as... Yeah, 2017 was about the peak, so it was about 13 or so percent of all of the... Uh, all of the the total rewards. So to reiterate there, the miner who adds the block to the blockchain, they get the block reward, which is fixed in the protocol, how much mm-hmm. that's going to be. And then they also get the fees for the transaction in that block. And during 2017, there was a huge bull run. So people were just sending money like crazy. Exchanges were very mm-hmm. inefficient with the block space. So in general, the price was $50 quite, fees. Yep. Was quite high. So that added up a good amount. But now we've been seeing it much lower than that. So people start to worry because if you actually dive into this different scenarios, which I've also included some images of, like what is actually going to happen to that security budget? And then you can totally imagine why someone who is not so familiar with Bitcoin starts worrying. And I don't raise these numbers and, and items to try to create FUD and to try to make people worry. I just think it's good to look into, to do more research about, to talk more about, because if we don't do it, people will take this as a talking point to attack Bitcoin and to talk about how it's not going to be secure. Hmm. Um, But it does look like the security budget of 2021, uh, the amount that came from fee rewards, is about the same as 2015's total security budget. Uh, uh, no, you're correct. Yeah, yeah a bit. I yeah. mean, maybe it's a little bit less. Yeah. But about that, so if the um, you know if there's a lag from the uh, fee rewards of about I don't know five six years from the network, but you would continue to see that growth in fees, then we know we're heading to the trajectory is towards a place where the security budget from fees can be high enough. Theoretically, yeah. Theoretically. So I, I dive into a couple scenarios because I was also like, you know, why do I do this research? Because we're like curious about what is the future of the network going to look like. Mm. Uh, it's just important to have a bit of an understanding of that. Uh, and I don't know, Danny, I included a couple slides as well with a few scenarios to dive into. But first, here, oh yeah, I also make the comparison to gold because actually I think Lynn Alden brought this up in one of her, she also did like a fee security modeling okay. post, which was uh, really in depth. And she mentioned like, you know, if you look at gold, gold has uh, uh, its own security budget as well because people need to store it in vaults, etc. 
But I figured like gold is a little bit different because gold is not on a globally shared ledger that you can just attack from anywhere in the yeah. world if you have hash power. Uh, and it also lacks a lot of the properties that Bitcoin has, which could make, for example, nation states want to attack Bitcoin. Uh, that's just, yeah, it, it's a very different type of thing. So I don't know if it's as easy to say, like, you know, if we just look at a couple other assets, like how much are people spending there on security and just say for Bitcoin, it's going to be pretty similar. Uh, I don't know. I don't feel confident enough to say like that is a good, healthy approach to look at it. But if you do take that approach of the 0.7%, which is from what I could tell, sort of what people are spending to secure their gold every year. Uh, if you take that for Bitcoin, then you'd get to a security budget currently of about $2.2 billion. So Yeah, I'm just not sure that analogy works. Yeah, but looking at the number earlier, you know, yeah. if that's the $9.5 billion or so, then we're significantly overshooting this mark. But the question is, yeah, it's just a totally different asset, totally different model. Uh, so it's kind of tricky to make that comparison, I think. And, and I don't think that for a lot of people who dive into it a bit, they would feel enough at ease to say, like, okay, this is a good way to measure it. Because it's just an arbitrary number at the end of the day. It's, it's essentially, it's a number that's being set by people who have vaults and it's like a, it's a market for, uh, you know, where can you store your gold or not. But uh, yeah, I dive into a couple of the scenarios here and I tried to look at some different ones. Like the first scenario, what if there's no additional Bitcoin adoption? And I know that's really depressing for people to hear because everyone wants to see Bitcoin succeed, but kind of assuming mm -hmm. a really bad scenario, you know, if we sort of keep the median transaction fee of, uh, 2022, which was about $1.5. And I know some maximalists will be screaming like, you can't measure the fees in, in dollar terms. It has to be in Satoshi's per V-byte or something like that. But you just, can. Just to make it approachable for people. So there were about $100 million transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain in 2022. Let's say we have about the same number because that's just sort of where we're hovering. And the median Bitcoin price, uh, if that remains the same as it was for 2022, then the security budget would reduce to $446 million in 20 years from now. So there's a reduction of 95% compared what, to Why is that? Because the block reward is going to be decreasing. So the number of Bitcoins that you earn if ah. you add a block to the blockchain, and then more of the budget needs to come from transaction fees. Huh. Okay, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So when you look at this number and when people are using this number to create FUD, like to make people worry, you know, if you're talking about a 95% reduction in security budget in 20 years, if there's no adoption, that's, it's a, it's a pretty steep decline, but yeah. you know, like no adoption. I, I think like a lot of people are into Bitcoin. They're not expecting that in 20 years from now, the Bitcoin will be more or less the same size it is, as it is now. And, and this is because what you're saying is, is that if everything stays equal, but the block rewards falling, and if Bitcoin is set the same worth about yeah. high 16,000, 17,000, uh, the miners are going to be rewarded with a lot less. Yeah, exactly. And therefore, the security budget reduces quite significantly. I mean, what is that? A 95% reduction? Yeah. Uh, and so that would mean that the network is uh, a little bit more fragile, yeah. considerably more fragile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we need we need the price to go up. That would be handy, but I try to look at this as well. You know, like what if earlier you asked, like, how much do we need to grow to get to a Zash? That's a times four. So what if we take sort of the same approach with the median price from 2022? That was my second scenario I took. Then you get to a median Bitcoin price of 140, 114K. And, you know, the median transaction fee, let's say that stays the same. We just mostly have people hoarding Bitcoin. And as a result, like not much, not much more on-chain activity. So in that scenario, even though the price goes times four, 
we still end up with a reduction of 87% of security budget in 20 years from now. Wow. So that's start, like for a lot of people, that's a bit of a wake up call. Like, okay, hold on. Like we can't just buy and hold Bitcoin and only do that. And that's going to help like, again, like sort of adding a caveat there, like this does not necessarily mean that Bitcoin won't work, that it won't be secure, but it will be looked at in a different way if the security budget decreases, because we honestly just don't know how much do we actually need to fend off all of these potential attacks. There's no like uh, enough security budget. Yeah, it's it's kind of like with physical security, you know, you could spend $100,000 every month on physical security and someone might still figure out a way to kill you. Uh, yeah, that it's just a, a tricky thing with security in general. This is absolutely not unique to Bitcoin. It's just insanely difficult to model for. So, uh, so did you have a number for that the price needs to be at to be able to maintain the security budget? Yes, we so have that's now? indeed that's the next scenario where I was okay. wondering, you know, if there's no more, if the fees don't really go up, people are just buying Bitcoin and just holding it over time, um, but on chain just doesn't get used a ton more. Then in this case, Bitcoin would need to reach like it's somewhere above 900k. Okay, we like that. In, yeah, in 20 years from now, to sort of match the 2022 9.5 billion security budget. Well, I hope it happens. I hope I'm still alive. Um, I hope so too for you. Yeah. So this says to me the most important thing we should be doing is driving adoption. Yes. And the 100%. second and the second most important thing is driving usage. Yes. Yeah. Oh, 100%. This is really the thing I'm trying to make clear with this is a lot of people in Bitcoin have this perspective, like there's just been a meme for a long time, which is buy and hold, and then the price will go way up and we're all going to get rich, etc. But I think it's really important to think about the security budget as sort of a sort of an incentive for people in the space to think about how can we actually get adoption. It puts a bit of a time frame on it, not so urgent that you think like, you know, if if the security budget decreases too much, it can't be used anymore, time's up. But a lot of people look at the halving of this way of, you know, this is, like, it will make the supply scarcer, et cetera, that's great for price, et cetera. But I look at more at this, more as like, you know, another four years have passed. What have we done to make Bitcoin more accessible, more usable for people to get it in the hands of those who need it the most? And I try to look at it a bit more like that. Like yeah. how can we see this as an incentive for ourselves to not sort of fall into this slumber where we're just buying and holding and thinking of new narratives to sort of be philosophical about Bitcoin, but really like, you know, how can we sort of stay sharp and, and see how can we get this to the people who need it? What is the block reward in that 24? I mean, what's that? Uh, eight, 18 years? Just having a look. Where are we in right now? 6.25. Right. Yeah, we have these smartphone devices. We can just look it up. I've looked at so many of these numbers yeah. so many times. 0.39. So that's that's going to be about three hundred fifty-one thousand, which is about um, that must be what the, but that should be what it is right now, right? Yeah, yeah, because that's maintenance. Yeah, but then also, you know, if the price rises so much, the market cap also increases significantly. So you're actually paying a smaller portion in security budget relative to the total market price, uh, total market cap of Bitcoin. It's fascinating to see what will actually happen. Yeah, because if I mean, if the security budget continues to grow mm -hmm. like it has, uh, I mean, some people are going to get fabulously wealthy. But if it doesn't, there's going to be other scenarios that people will have to plan for. Yeah. And I think there's a scenario where some people will maybe start to doubt the future of Bitcoin. And yeah. I'm not fudding it. Yeah. 
but they will doubt it. I, I think, and this is this is why it's so important for there to be more research in this. And as difficult as that research is, I try to give it my best effort in the report, but I'm not someone who can do like extensive uh, regression analysis and all of these things. Um, you know, also just a, a guy who tries to be smart with a spreadsheet. But, but this uh, is why I think some people have been like, well, maybe just a little bit of inflation is okay. Yeah, there's like, there's discussions that will be had, I think many in general, like how are we, you know, how do we look at this in the future? There, you know, there's lots of different options, but Donations I, think and I think, yeah, it's just good to be open about the discussion and to not sort of cut it off and just let, let's ignore it and let's just leave it be because then it's going to live a life of its own and people will just use it as a way to talk down on Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, look, we're okay for the moment because with every halving cycle, mm -hmm. uh, we have seen the growth in price, which has seen the growth in the security budget. Yeah. So we're okay with that. Um, I think we're okay with a slowdown. I think we're, we're probably okay with a leveling out if it starts to drop. So we have to maintain that adoption rate at a higher yeah. rate than the drop in the security budget. I don't know if I've explained that correctly, but anyway, so the point being is we have to drive adoption and equally we have to drive usage. Yeah. Both very important things. Somebody else recently said about uh, the HODL meme needs to die. Yeah, I think I, like I've been listening to the last few podcasts, so. Yeah, okay, that's super interesting. Yeah. So one real big and interesting test is going to be in, when's the halving, is it a year and a half? 20, yeah. yeah, 2024. Yep. Yeah. I mean, look, one of the things that's also happened uh, in the last years, I believe the full potential price of Bitcoin should have got to was suppressed by all the fuckery amongst the borrowers and lenders in the market, everything, mm -hmm. Genesis, BlockFi, uh, God, three hours capital, uh, Celsius, like there's so much fuckery. And like with the likes of FTX, turning out they weren't even, they didn't even have the Bitcoin. We don't even know if they're yeah. selling Bitcoin and like, and not actually buying it, then actually there's a potential, we may, that may have been a price that would have gone over 100K. We, we won't ever know that. We can only yeah. speculate. But it would be nice in the next uh, run, if one happens, which fingers crossed it does, uh, that it's done in a, a more stable environment without the fuckery going on. Difficult. Human beings. <laughs> yeah. I, I almost thought of changing my name, actually, after the, the whole FTX thing, because I just don't want to give people PTSD about this for years to come being called Sam. But I think you can get away with it. Yeah, they're good Sam. You just need space. a nickname. Just go with Woots or something. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Did you have a nickname as a kid? Uh, not really, no. The funny thing is, like, whether it's that game you were playing, or it's shit coins, or it's the government, you give someone the chance to print money. Yeah they will print money. Absolutely. Uh, whereas if everyone just focused on Bitcoin, well, yeah. not everyone, not everyone can win, but like if a lot of people just focused on Bitcoin, mm -hmm. stop fucking around, yeah. uh, we won't go through this. Okay. There's, yeah, there's one more scenario that I looked into and there's lots of different variants you can make of this one, but it's essentially looking at, you know, in the, in the previous one, uh, previous ones, I was looking at a scenario where the transaction fee sort of remain, the average transaction fee sort of remains the same. And that's not really necessarily a realistic scenario like you know what why would you make that assumption it's just easy to do some of the math but in this case here you know what if the transaction fee started going up what if the bitcoin blockchain turned into a bit of a settlement layer rather than a transaction layer so instead of people using it for payments it's just batching lots of transactions that are for example happening on the lightning network uh, and on other kinds of solutions like people have also talked about fediment etc 
so, you know, what if these things started taking a lot of the transactions and then Bitcoin itself as a settlement layer? So then the transaction fees could actually rise because if you are bundling your transaction together with thousands of others, then you don't mind paying a small share of a $50 transaction fee to get that settled on a blockchain hmm. because it's just spread over so many transactions. So what if you mix those two? then uh, you would still get a Bitcoin price in 20 years from now. Like if you wanted to match the security budget of 2022, you'd get a Bitcoin price of like over 400K. And the average transaction fee then would be like $50 or so, which is like, that's a pretty big bump that's in 20 years from now to match that security budget of today. So it kind of gives an idea of like how much would transaction fees need to rise if you want to match what is there currently. And again, there's nothing that says or proves that we must match what is there now. Uh, that is the necessary number. But um, it's just good to be somewhat aware of like what order of magnitude are these numbers and what order of magnitude might they need to be. I think a lot of people will be curious about that. And just even knowing that, you know, like how big does it need to be? Is this enough or is even 10% of this, is that already definitely secure enough? Because there's no way there's going to be a government or just any kind of rogue actor that manages to get that many mining rigs together without people noticing and then start censoring the blockchain and just like, mining empty blocks all over, just not letting anyone compete and just kind of, uh, yeah, making everyone struggle that way. You know, if like, if that's yeah. the biggest risk, but like if even with billions of dollars, you can pull that off, then we can over secure the network. But what's that going to do? So, yeah. And, and most likely what's the scenarios that's going to happen is that it'd be a combination of these factors. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Just like with so many things, like the answers are, are typically nuanced. I think, I think it was a Mark Moss uh, on that interview you recently had, you were talking like there's no nuance left yeah. by any means. I, I actually tried to operate from the sort of the, the opposite perspective. I assume everything is nuanced instead of just jumping to a conclusion like, oh, it's probably that, just putting it in a box. But I tried to assume like it's probably more complicated than I think it is and then just kind of take it from there and see what exactly are the factors there, how much did they weigh on all of this stuff, what are the probabilities, and then uh, kind of take it from there. So... So when you're looking at this and considering the mining sector itself, what role does mining equipment play in this? Yeah, that's one of the factors, like sort of the second one after the security budget that I looked into, like, you know, how many mining rigs are we even going to need to pull this off? Is it just the times four based on the number that's there today? How many are there today? But they will get more efficient, though. That's the assumption. Uh, and that is that is betting on human ingenuity, which in general, like if you look at the history of hash, like uh, of mining rigs, that's been true. They have been improving a lot. Is there, I don't know if it's in your report, but have you tracked the, uh, the performance of the miners through their innovation cycles? Yeah. Okay, can we see that? Uh, yeah, I think like... Uh, if you go into the slides, Danny, there's like the report is underneath. When I went to the Texas Blockchain Council's uh, event in Austin, I think, uh, was it last month, Danny? Uh, no, a couple of months ago. A couple of months ago. There was a guy there who had created like a, a museum of ASICs. Yeah. And he had them literally from the start through. It was fascinating to see. So this one shows like the different miter models, the most efficient model every year that was released. Yeah. Like, you know, how much power did they need? What was their hash rate per second? So this this kind of shows like the, the progression that sort of the equalization is the watts per terahash thing. That shows the efficiency. So how okay. many watts do you need to calculate a trillion hashes per second? So the most recent sort of best performing models, uh, uh, Antminer S19 XP Hydro, the bottom there, it has uh, it, it takes about 21 watts to calculate a trillion hashes per second. 
the city improvement there in the column next to it. So that's how much more efficient they are getting. So, oh, so okay. if you look at this past year, actually, that's been the, the lowest jump. Yeah, 3%. Of of, so only 3%. So in some of the further modeling that I did, I tried to assume that worst case scenario. What if we only get 3% more efficient every year? Because there, like a lot of people have talked about Moore's law and how you know eventually it becomes really difficult to get these machines more efficient. Yeah, but you know why? They're saving the super efficient machine for 2024. Yeah. They know what they're going to do. <laughs> did you hear that... Um, thesis, I think it was John Carvalho put out, that China, people are still mining in China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, China banned mining as a way to uh, radically redistribute all the old inefficient miners around the world, which saw massive uh, mining warehouses created in the US. And come 2024, oh, yeah. once the new uh, range of miners, new efficient miners become available, they will be in China and uh, the US will be left with these less efficient machines. Yeah. What did, did you buy anything into that? Um, be fascinating if it's true. Yeah, I, I kind of like, I have my doubts that, you know, that's, that's kind of the level they're thinking at. Like, you know, let's distribute all of this stuff and then just screw a lot of people over outside of China because they would also, I think they would realize, you know, if, if all of the hash rate would then go back to China, uh, you know, in a couple of years from now, and that's where the most efficient machines would be, then maybe a lot of people would lose faith in Bitcoin as a result. You know, if they would feel like, oh, China's just taking this thing over, because that's the narrative that would Dude, probably Dude, how many spun. things have we had that should lead to us losing our faith? Like, all the shit this year, we should have lost No, for faith. sure, but I think more in terms of, like, additional investors. Not the people who are in there, because they're going to stick around and they'll, they'll sort of keep dollar cost averaging in and, and buy more, but maybe new investors that just don't really understand much about all of this, they might be a bit frightened. I don't even think they will know it's happening or read also about true. it. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't think they'll, they'll know. I think uh, I think it'd be fascinating if it did. I'd kind yeah. of laugh at that. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. This is fascinating. Um, okay, let's talk about the energy side of things. Yeah. How does energy impact hash rate? So... Energy is just ultimately one of the most important things because it's responsible for a large amount of the costs that miners have. Uh, other than like, like the the mining rake part, we're not really diving into that uh, uh, as much. But um, like that's part of the cost. But ultimately, the energy defines whether a miner, the energy price defines whether a miner is going to stick around when the margins are really small. Okay. Uh, so what I tried to look into is what are some of the different scenarios, like how much energy will Bitcoin mining use in general over the next 20 years in this case? Like, you know, if we want to reach a Zeta hash, what does that look like? Is it going to boil the oceans? Is it going to use up uh, uh, orders of magnitude more energy or not? So what I took in this case was uh, the hash rate growth, uh, like so, so sort of the, the average growth per mining rig that is out there like how much more uh, ashes is it doing per second? So on the one hand, you have mining rigs getting more efficient. On the other hand, the newer models that are coming out, they also have higher hash rates uh, than the previous models that were out there. And if you do some of the math on there, then on average, the average mining rig is, on average, the average, the mining rig is getting about 3.6% more ashes per second every year. So if you take that kind of growth and you map it out, then over the next 20 years, you see dash rate growth uh, grow to about the uh, uh, Zeta hash range there. 
So that's sort of the two thirds mm. of the graph. Yeah. Uh, and then what if mining rigs don't become more efficient than they are today? That's when you get that first scenario that Danny was just showing where the power demand uh, would just grow along with the hash rate. Like it's just going to be the same. The only thing that happens is people just put more, like 3% more miners online every year on average. And like the mining rigs just get a little more uh, power in there, but it just doesn't really change. Uh, by the way, in this, do you account for old rigs going offline? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. The, the sort of the the assumption here is that the average ASIC has about a five year lifespan. Is what typically gets talked about. That can be inaccurate. It could be that you know we find that in ten years from now, actually this time frame becomes a bit bigger or it's a bit smaller. But you know you can model this out the same all over again if you use a three year time frame, if you use a ten year time frame. But for now, I've taken five years, and then you assume that twenty percent of the hash rate will, or sort of twenty percent of the mining rigs, not the hash rate, will go offline every year and get replaced by a newer generation. So that's that's a pretty aggressive replacement rate to take, uh, because that just means yeah, that's tons of machines all around the world that are being replaced every year. But uh, if we take the 3% yearly efficiency improvement that you saw earlier mm -hmm. from the 2021 best model to the 2022 one, if we take that kind of improvement every year, then you would see that uh, in terms of power demand, it actually uh, requires significantly less power just purely from this compounding efficiency improvement every year. So we're already talking like instead of taking like 50 uh, gigawatts, you're like down to 30 or so, which is already quite a big difference. And then there's another scenario where if we take uh, the average over the past five years of how much more efficient mining weeks have gotten, because that last year, the 3% that was a bit of an anomaly. The previous years, there was always like a 30 or 40% jump. So if you take that kind of number, then you would actually decrease in total power demand compared to where we are today, just because the rate of innovation is so crazy high uh, but as mentioned before, like it's it's not necessarily realistic to expect that every year mining rigs will keep getting 30 or 40 percent more efficient than the year before, and then about 20 percent of all the mining rigs gets replaced. But that is what it would look like if that was the case. This show is brought to you by Ledger, and now with everything that's happened in Bitcoin over the last few months, it again highlighted the importance of self custody and why Ledger is such an important company for the industry. Now, I have been using a Ledger Nano S since 2017, since when I got back into Bitcoin. And I'm still using that same Ledger Nano S now. I still got, I literally got it here set with me right now. Now, with Ledger, you have industry-leading security built into the Ledger device. And also, they have got a new device coming soon. It's called a Stacks. It's totally awesome. I've pre-ordered mine. But the Ledger Nano S has been the leading hardware device for people to store their Bitcoin for years now. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is shop.ledger.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, fast withdrawals, and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. And from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. 
Now, Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer. I've been using Ledin since they've became a sponsor, and I absolutely love the service. Now, if you want to find out more about this, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. So the price of energy is super important. So it's, yeah, it's, it's extremely important because in, in this case, this talks a bit about, you know, the efficiency of mining rigs, and that is one part of the equation, but then energy comes in, you know, like you can have the most efficient mining rig, but if you don't have access to cheap energy, then you'll still get outcompeted uh, by a lot of people, quite likely. So uh, looking at the, maybe we can go skip yeah. a bit ahead at some of the uh, energy graphs. But uh, essentially, like, yeah, I think this is still important to point out as I forgot the last part there, even in those worst case scenarios, uh, the percentage that is actually being used of the total global energy demand, uh, if you go uh, one step further, Danny, you see the percentages on there. So even in a very aggressive growth scenario, the total power demand from the Bitcoin network, like worst case here would be 0.15% of the global power demand. That is like at a rate where, you know, 20%, we have 20% growth in hash rate every year for the next 20 years, uh, or in this case, this is about uh, eight years, actually, to get to a Z-hash. That's how long it would take at that rate. But then, like, worst case, we'd end up at 0.15, and that's assuming that there will be no innovation in mining for the next eight years, which is just not a realistic assumption because that's never been the case in the history of Bitcoin. That's a really interesting statistic. Yeah. And it's great for the fudsters yeah. who are worried about Bitcoin's energy consumption. Yeah. I mean, it was that crazy thing that came out a few... I'm not sure if it was the Cambridge group or somebody yeah. that said, like, Bitcoin will end up using all the energy on the planet. No, that was the World Economic Forum. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Fucking that was idiots. 2017, and they predicted Joshua. that by 2020, it would use all of the energy in the world. So I, I kind of, like, I just tried to figure this out myself. Like, okay, how much is it actually going to use? And these are sort of the numbers that I uh, arrived at. But these are just scenarios. It could be that the actual growth rate is significantly higher. Mm -hmm. And some people might say, like, well, if you look at the past year, we've gone from, like, 200 exahash to, like, almost 300 in a year. That's a 50% increase. So people start taking that kind of number. But at the same time, it's good for people to realize this has been very much an anomaly. I think Troy Cross also mentioned this quite a bit. Uh, where he was saying, like, you know, like this was a time period where mining was insanely profitable, so people were buying rigs like crazy, and just everything came online over a pretty brief period of time. So, yeah, that's important to look into. And this is also something I try to highlight uh, in the report, is like, you know, even if the energy increases so much, then the next piece of FUD, I guess, that a lot of people have is, you know, like, oh, but that's, you know, that's all going to be more coal-based energy that is being used for Bitcoin mining, etc., uh, and, it, you know, it's going to, we have energy crises in, in, like, that's sort of starting to blow over a little bit in some parts now. But what if there are energy crises? Like, how is it going to impact households and whatnot? But actually, if you look at where Bitcoin miners operate, like I made this graph here of, uh, on the one axis, you have the uh, sort of energy scarcity versus abundance. So how much energy is there around in areas? And on the other axis, you have the population. So is it densely populated or sparsely populated? And if you use these two axes, you get... Uh, four quadrants. And typically what you see is that miners do not operate in the areas where a lot of people are worried about them operating. They don't operate in 
you know, industrial areas where, where the energy is being used up by, you know, consumers anyway. They don't operate as much in cities in general, because typically that's just where there is lots of demand, even though cities, they need to overgenerate their demand. And yeah. it's been talked about in a lot of shows, I think. Uh, but they're very much in like rural areas where there's a lot of renewable energy that cannot be like instantly transported to where the people actually live. So that's where miners operate. Uh, that's where they get the cheapest possible energy. And this is also where you get into some of the discussion around the vented methane gas, because that is actually like, and I would expect in the future is going to be a far more popular source of energy, because in essence, you could even envision a future where governments would almost subsidize miners to go set this stuff up. If they had an adequate understanding of how mining can play a role there, then they might say like, hold on, we need to go all in on this and actually find entrepreneurs who are willing to put this, this in as many places as possible to get rid of all that methane gas and to stop uh, warming the planet. Isn't it ironic that this industry, which a number of environmentalists have accused it of being damaging for the environment, especially the Greenpeace, is Greenpeace the change the code? Yeah. Yeah, those yep. dicks. And Ripple. Yeah, and Ripple. Um, is actually something that might uh, contribute to... Uh, uh, dealing with some of the environmental issues that we have, and we can, you know, we can realistically get to a point where uh, its uh, energy usage is actually negative in terms of um, uh, Car carbon, carbon, carbon negative. Yeah, sorry, yeah. it's carbon negative. I mean, it's ironic that we can get to that point with this technology. Yeah, and it feels like such a tragedy realizing this, and then just thinking like, how you know, how can we get these people to understand it? And one of the goals of the report, I. I sort of tried to write it in a way where almost everyone can take something away from it yeah. and it becomes a bit of a tool to start conversations. And I also use it very much to highlight some of the work that, uh, for example, Sean Connell with Lancium yeah. that they're doing, the Adam Wright, uh, who's also been on the show, uh, um, Daniel Batten's work is like quite prominent in it as well because he talks a lot about the modeling around this, like how can we get it carbon negative? So it's just a it's sort of a, a way to market it, like the, the packages in such a way to get people interested and to see like what is the future of mining going to look like and how can these things play a role. But it's yeah. insane. It's like it, it can become carbon negative while fixing the yeah. financial system. <laughs> Satoshi, you crazy oh, bastard. Overachiever. I mean, you know, none of us know who Satoshi is, but if that person is still alive, I would love to know what they make of this because... Either they're going to go, yeah, I fucking knew this was going to happen. That's how badass I was. Or they're going to be like, I had no fucking idea. I just created this. I just wanted to create a tool for people to sell. This uh, sounds like a story at a pub somewhere, you know, where you... Yeah. Yeah, yeah I just created this thing because I wanted to fix money. And, like, you guys have taken it to this whole next level. It would be fascinating, but we'll never find out. Um, okay. Are there any blind spots in this that you have? And I know, like... If you had blind spots, you wouldn't know them because they're blind spots. But do you know what I mean? Are there any areas where you've really kind of tested yourself and said, where can I be wrong here? Yeah. Um, uh, what I actually, what I tried to do in the report as well is assume what if none of this like methane-based mining, et cetera, happens? What if, what if we can't get it carbon neutral? You know, what, what if all of these innovative solutions just don't really get traction or there's too much FUD, there's not enough support from governments, et cetera? So I tried to assume this scenario as well. Um, and I think there might be the next graph, Danny, that I put in there, which focuses a bit on sort of the renewable energy share over time. So this kind of looks at how much more efficient has mining 
sorry, how much how much green energy does mining use? Sort of like in total, how much of the energy that's being used is is renewably sourced? Let me put it that way. So initially, like you had that that slump there in the beginning, which is when a lot of the mining power went uh, from China to much of the rest of the world, where initially there was still a lot of coal-based mining. So now, like based on the Bitcoin Mining Council data, there's sort of around 59 to 60% of all the energy that is being used to mine Bitcoin. Have you is, compared this to other industries? It's renewably sourced. Uh, that is part of their research as well. Like you can, they do these quarterly updates and they compare it to other research, uh, sorry, to other industries there. And then it's like, those are all looking significantly worse, where typically you'll see uh, like, in the case of Bitcoin, so you're about 60% and in other industries and other countries as well. That's also what it's compared to. They're like 10, 20, 30% lower. Uh, so they use far more fossil fuels for their industry. But somehow Bitcoin is often held to a different standard because a lot of people don't. But you know why. Yeah. They don't have an issue with Bitcoin energy usage. You know that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's just about like they. a lot of people, they just don't really see the point of Bitcoin or they don't feel like they need it or they're they envi don't envious. It. They don't understand it or they're envious of people they know that have made money and keep yeah. rubbing it in. Yeah. So there's just tons of different reasons why they fundamentally don't want to get it. And as a result, it's just held to... Or they're ignorant yeah. or they've read something wrong online. But I think if you can sit down with somebody even the most harshest critic, and you could... And this is why the work that Jason Myers doing on his book, A Progressive mm -hmm. Case of Bitcoin, is so important, because I think we're pretty secure in our arguments for conservative people why Bitcoin is good. I don't think we've been so good with progressive arguments, or liberals, or yeah. whatever you want to call them. People on YouTube will be complaining my terms. I, but, I think but, like, but he is talking about the wealth gap. Yeah. You know, he's talking about these kind of ideas. We suddenly have... Uh, a very strong defense against the majority of the arguments that come about uh, at us get into the point where really someone you just have to turn around and say, look, you don't like Bitcoin. Just tell us why you don't like Bitcoin. Stop, stop with all this bullshit. Yeah. Like, what is it you don't like? You pissed off you didn't get something. You're still early. Look, look at the, look where we are. But yeah. Now, so, something I try to keep in mind there is like, and that's like, I guess that's like a whole other episode worth of content, but I, I find that a lot of people are not necessarily great at educating others about Bitcoin. And they don't understand the level of sort of nuance that is needed or the way you can actually, like a lot of people think of the perspective, I need to convince this other person of Bitcoin. And I find that a, like a, it's the wrong way to sort of jump into it and to try to approach the subject because you already have sort of an end goal in mind of I must convince them. And as a result, a lot of people get a bit bushy. They start just coming up with the arguments that typically convince them in the past without really having the sort of the empathy or the, the worldview to understand where is this other person coming from and how does this stuff actually come across to them. That's so I, I find That's that when you talk about energy stuff, the best thing you can do, and it's similar to Bitcoin, like financial talk in general as well, if, if you find someone very skeptical, don't try to convince them that they're like that they are completely wrong and you are completely right. Just try to show them that a lot of the arguments that they have are not correct. They're not well found. And you don't even need to go the extra mile there and then sort of push Bitcoin onto them and explain everything to them because it's too much information at once. All you need to do is plant that initial seed yeah. to show them you don't actually understand necessarily what you're talking about. If you're interested, I can explain a bit more to you about it, but I don't want to push it on you. And when you keep it open like that, a lot of people feel like, okay, hold on, like, I've been thinking this stuff for years. Maybe there is something more to it. And all right, I'll, I'll hear you out. So you make it, yeah. you disarm it. You're way. so right because 
Whenever you ask somebody for their Bitcoin story, they will say, yeah, I heard about it in 2013. wasn't sure, but like 2015, I started to get more into it. Nobody says, yeah, I heard about it in 2013. And the next day, I was really convinced and like sold everything and bought all the, all yeah. the Bitcoin I could. Everyone has that like first couple of touch points. They go, okay, well, why didn't you buy a shitload yeah. of that first day? It's like, well, I wasn't sure because this. Okay, but everyone you speak to is at that first yeah. touch point. Like, let's be empathetic. And, and to be honest, not even necessarily because... A lot of, like, nowadays almost everyone's heard of Bitcoin. Everyone's And heard of Bitcoin. they all have sort of an opinion about it already. Yeah. And back when I got into it, uh, there was very little non-technical information and there was very little written about it in general. So I But had, you still drew an opinion. Not not as much. I was just curious. I was like, it, it sounds too good to be true, so what is the catch? That was sort of my perspective and it took me months to actually understand because there was almost no non-technical explanation about it. Uh, and I think like some of the Andreas videos started going around oh, okay. at that point. And that started helping because finally someone I can understand is not talking about the code as much. But I think nowadays it's very different. It's it's more political. It's more like the world is, I guess, like a much more complicated and much more sort of, uh, how do you call it, like tense place in a way. Like people are just hyper-focused and distracted and all of these things at the same time. So people come into Bitcoin in a bit of a different way, I think, mm. and, and sort of trying to convince them that it's worth spending time on is tricky when everyone's just very pressed for time and, and they want the TLDR, they want the quick explanation, they like the headlines that just say the quick thing, like you don't have to worry about it because then they also feel good, like, you know, I don't have to worry about Bitcoin, like it's, it's not going to work out. They just tell themselves that because they feel like they missed the boat. So some of them are just actually hoping that it won't succeed because then they'll feel extra bad they didn't get in earlier. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, okay, so what are the constraints for us getting towards a Zeta hash? Yeah, uh, maybe to round this one up okay, with the sustainable energy thing. Yeah. Uh, like if you project this growth rate out of like uh, the conservative case of about 1.7% more renewable energy every year, then on the next graph, uh, if you plot this out over the next 20 years, then we'd get to 93% renewable energy used for Bitcoin mining. This is just assuming there won't be any vented methane mining, there won't be any of those use cases where people are trying to use mining to be more That's like, fascinating. efficient in general. So it's just going to green itself by the fact that like solar and wind have gotten a lot cheaper over the years. Would you consider, if they started mining on nuclear, would you consider that green? Uh, I suppose so, yeah. I, I, I had a question on the report actually where someone's like, you know, where's the nuclear mining section? I was like, well, it's just not at the scale where I can really plot anything out into the future, it's like not enough mining today is done with nuclear to really say anything meaningful about that. And it's not that it wasn't in there because I don't believe that it's going to happen uh, or that uh, I believe that it should be looked at or not. It's just a matter of the, the data isn't there and I don't want to make this an opinionated piece where I start talking about, I, I think this is the future of mining. It's just looking at the data. How does it potentially play out? Okay, so the constraints. To yeah, get so, into. so constraints, uh, I think like I, your last show that is live anyway, the Matthew Pines one, I was actually thinking he would talk about one of these in there because it's about the whole US and China conflict. And what we've recently, or a couple months ago, we saw was that the US started uh, uh, giving China some trouble by cutting off uh, essentially employees from working for their like chip manufacturers, yeah. etc. So you start getting into this kind of chip conflict. And what also has chips it's Bitcoin miners, ASICs. Yep. Now, if we look today, there's a graph in there as well, Danny, with a global map. I think it's this one, yeah. So it shows the active ASIC manufacturers around the world. Is the Intel model out? 
Uh, so they have they have made a model, but it's not being sold yet, as oh, far okay. as I'm aware. So they just they have a model, but it's not uh, in the market. So uh, the other three active manufacturers at large scale, anyway, that I could find, MicroBT, Bitmain, Ganan, uh, known for their end miners, I think Watts Miner and Avalon. Uh, so they're the biggest out there today. But they're all like all of them use like Chinese uh, suppliers in some kind of way, or they use chip factories around the area. And, you know, you had this this kind of movement from the U.S. against China. Now, what if China would retaliate? What if China would say, we're also going to ban exports of chips to the U.S.? It's a possible future. No idea how likely that is. But if that were to happen, like, where is the majority of the mining hash rate today? It's in the U.S. So if China would say, like, you know, we're going to return this kind of, this kind of action, this kind of policy in kind, that will also ban... Uh, exports from China to the US, then there could be a scenario where it just becomes a lot more complicated to get miners in the hands of US-based uh, miners. And China could control a lot of hash rate and 51% attack the network. Well, so there's some questions there because in essence, today China has banned Bitcoin. Like I think one of the next graphs, it shows the share and it also kind of shows how uh, uh, actually, mining isn't really banned in China. So there was this brief period in 2021. This the theory. Where they tried to ban it. Uh, but then a lot of those guys started going off-grid. Smaller scale operations started distributing themselves. and Come just, on, you can't hide 21% of the hash rate. Not easily, but at the same time. So from, from what I've seen and from the research that's out there, a lot of this is just off-grid, which makes it a lot more difficult to... Uh, find out where exactly it's located. And they obviously, like, they don't report as much of their statistics, so that's also why the data is a bit uh, older. It's from January 2022. I don't believe it. Okay. I don't believe that they can hide 21%. So these are also, like, keep in mind, this is from about a year ago. It could be that it's significantly lower by now or because higher. a lot of it has been cracked down on, or indeed higher. Yeah. So that we don't really know, but it's, yeah, it's quite difficult to... Uh, Okay, so are these, those, those countries, oh, go on Ireland. Ireland with 2% of the so, so important to keep in mind there is like, uh, there's like a little asterisk next to those countries because that's just where the IP addresses are originating. So, so these are people Chinese. that use VPNs and they're actually mining in, in other locations. I was going to say, I would have thought Ireland would be too expensive. But yeah. that said, I've had a, we've had a couple of miners reach out to us from Ireland, haven't we? There's the shilling guys that yeah. do the farm mining. Yeah. yeah. Oh, go on Ireland. Um, yeah. So the U.S. has grown significantly. Um, and, yeah, you know, if there's tensions there where it becomes more difficult to get miners to the U.S., that could change things. At the same time, you know, if, if mining remains banned in China and China, like the government says to those manufacturers, you're not allowed to export to the U.S. anymore, then in essence, there is no reason for those companies to exist. Well, couldn't they export to other countries? Uh, yes, sure. And yeah, that could definitely happen. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and you, yeah, you'd likely see migration, and you'd see black markets emerge yeah, course, where people yeah. still get the mining rigs over there. But that could slow down the hash rate growth. I don't think it would necessarily stop us from getting to a Z-hash because you still get more efficient mining models. So eventually, you know, like in decades from now, a single mining rig might be able, like for all we know, it might be able to do a Z-hash. So that's eventually going to happen anyway. But one of the items here as well is if you look at the US that's grown significantly, what if there's a policy change in the U.S. that just makes mining in general far more difficult? Uh, it's mm -hmm. unrealistic, I think, given the White House report where they're sort of acknowledging like, okay, uh, it can be used for good reasons too. 
Um, and in general, the perspective has like has been like let's not use fossil fuel based mm -hmm. mining, but if you can do renewable based mining, then okay. So I think it's unlikely if that were to happen. However, if the U U.S. government would be like, all right, we don't want mining around here, that could again like sort of force a lot of miners to go look around the world, like where can we move to then? And a lot of other countries might consider adopting U.S. policy too. Uh, and that would just create a period of uncertainty, it would slow down hash rate growth, new investment in the space. So that's a potential hurdle to continuing to grow the hash rate Okay. as well, uh, along with all of the security budget related stuff, like how are we going to pay for all of these mining rigs uh, and potential conflicts and like how do we get the mining rigs around the world to the people who want to pay for that. I'm still fascinated by the island statistic. Yeah. Yeah, I think like a lot of it, like, there, this is, so this is data based on the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, and they mentioned like, yeah, we can't really determine the actual location of a lot of this mining. Daniel Batten has also challenged some of their research to like figure out like how, you know, how accurate are their numbers, uh, and he's found a lot more off-grid mining, which they are not not actually keeping into account in their numbers because mm. it's more difficult, and they're trying to rework their whole model to get it more accurate. So actually, it's uh, a, a little bit like sort of off from where the reality is, but not by a significant amount based on Daniel's analysis. We should speak to those guys and see how they can afford to do it in Ireland because it's completely unaffordable in yeah. the UK. Uh, I'd be interested to find out about that. Okay, anything else we've not considered uh, with regards to this, like regulations or... No, I don't, I don't think so. Like that's sort of the, the US thing there yeah. is, would be the biggest issue because that's where so much of the market share is. Uh, it could, you know, it could be that China cracks down on it once more, even heavier, and that part of that hash rate will just like spread out around the world as well. Uh, or again, per your theory, just stick around there but become state-owned. Okay, so how do you think this will all play out? It, it's nuanced, I would say. Like, so, so what I hope to see, maybe maybe that's a good thing to to talk about is a bit. I think like one of the previous slides, Danny, uh, the one you made of the Troy Cross show. Yeah. You should give Danny a raise for this one. Give Danny a raise? Yeah. Fuck off, man. <laughs> it <laughs> wasn't me that made this. <laughs> no. Uh, so on the Troy Cross show you had recently, you yeah. kind of talked about this idea of, you know, what if we start seeing uh, people use miners for all kinds of other business models. Like they, they use the, they repurpose the heat, for example, to, to dry wood, to make whiskey. Uh, all these examples have been brought up. They start integrating that into their businesses. Uh, he's also talked about the carbon capture methods potentially in the future, uh, miners being used for grid stabilization. So you sort of start to see a shift over time where uh, the security budget today is very largely dependent on what are miners making based on just the Bitcoin blocks and what's in there in terms of transaction fees and block reward. But we might see in the future where they make a bunch of their profit from using reusing that heat, from just helping energy grids, etc. So I hope to see a lot of innovation there mm. uh, and just a lot more attempts from entrepreneurs to try to make this stuff work and to, you know, just it's human ingenuity in a way. It's just trying to figure out like ways like how can we get this, like how can we get the most out of this? How can we just make this business sustainable? And in a way, it's like sort of diversifying the income stream. Like we're not just getting it from the Bitcoin network where sometimes margins might be really small, but we're also just integrating it with businesses. So I hope to see a lot of that, but it's also, it's a very hard path. It's like difficult to take so many different disciplines to get all of this stuff. Uh, and I think like I talked to Troy a little bit about the episode because I feel like one thing we can do to help accelerate this future is to talk a bit more about what is needed. Like, you know, like how do we actually get to that point? 
uh, like what kind of roles are needed to make this stuff if you you know if you have an idea of what is needed there and i think like in general lots of engineers who understand how like you know how do you repurpose heat in economical ways and you need business people sort of more business minded people who can run the economics on that because yeah i mean engineers can also do that but they should be spending their time on these things so in general i think there's lots of people sitting at the sidelines of bitcoin and sort of looking at like thinking like i would love to get involved in this industry but i'm not a an engineer, like I'm not a coder, I'm not a developer, so I don't know how to do that. And I'm not necessarily a good writer or I'm not a podcaster. So, you know, what could I do? But there's so many different opportunities. I think uh, if people get a bit creative and start looking into, you know, where do we ultimately want to get to? Uh, and this is really, I think, a thing that will grow a lot over the next decades where people just try to figure out like, okay, all this time we've been sort of wasting the heat from these miners because, you know, it's just easier to set it up this way. But could we diversify some of the risk in our business and just start also helping the narrative around mining, et cetera, and just showing people like, you know, this is how we can be super energy efficient and this is how to uh, sort of apply it to all kinds of use cases. Fascinating. So yeah, I made this graph of the episode to kind of uh, show that discussion. Okay, so look, if people want to read this, to, I mean, we'll put it in the show notes. If people want to read this and get in touch or speak to you, how do they get in touch? Uh, I'm on Twitter at SD Wouters. Uh, yeah, I'll put or, that in the show you can just Yeah, you can look up my name. Uh, Wouters? Yeah. And I said Woots. <laughs> no problem. That's fine. No, I think I think we've talked about most of the things, like some of the stuff in there we've touched on, like, you know, negative energy pricing, getting to all these climate goals and all these things. Like lots of the stuff I tried mm. to touch on in the report, like, you know, what kind of role can it play there just to make people aware, like what's the, sort of the size and scale of this thing? Dude, I'm massively out of my depth with a lot of this, uh, but it is fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm by no means an expert on it either, but just purely driven by like curiosity of what is the future of the network going to look like. Yeah. And this has also inspired me for sort of for the next thing to start working on. Well, it gives us a couple of, a few things to keep an eye on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So uh, my conclusion is that we need to uh, drive adoption, yeah. drive usage, uh, ensure that we don't have any stupid regulation. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, and hope China and America don't go to full economic war. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even worst case scenario, we focus very much on driving adoption. And it turned out, oh, we didn't need that much security budget. Well, we still got more adoption, right? So it's it's a win-win situation win -win, yeah. ultimately. But yeah. we should, yeah, keep focusing on that. Like, how can we sort of all use our talents to help Bitcoin grow and not just sit at the sidelines and hope it'll do it by itself or other people will do it for us. They'll put in a lot of hard work. Exactly. So we yeah. got to make it happen. Fascinating, man. Well, listen, appreciate you coming in to do this. Uh, I know you've got the conference next week, so uh, yeah. I hope you have fun at that. Thank and you. Uh, yeah, we should catch up on this in the future. Maybe come back in a year and figure out like where we're at. It'd be, it'd be really interesting to benchmark all of this. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'm planning to do that also with, uh, I previously wrote a report on the Lightning Network. So okay. uh, the company I work at River, we also offer, uh, like we have some of the biggest nodes in the Lightning Network. So I made a report about that as well. I'm also planning to repeat that every year with all of our insights there. Uh, and we'll, the we'll send that to us when you've done it. Uh, no, it's already made. I, oh, okay. I represented about it at Bitcoin Amsterdam. Uh, oh. but, but when I do the new one, sure, I'll, yeah. I'll be happy to share it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just lots of these topics I think you can revisit over time to sort of see like on what kind of track are we, is it somewhat accurate? I'll be so interested, re interested to revisit this in a year and 18 months, I think. Yeah. Like pre-halving, post-halving, see yeah. where we're at because it might just be like, yeah, Bitcoin's done its thing, on, on we go. Let's, yeah. not, let's not worry for another four years. 
and then we can all get super excited and then all get depressed when the price comes down again and repeat the same shit we do every four years. Yeah. Uh, Sam, thank you so much, man. Uh, stay in touch. Anything you need, just reach out to me and Danny. Yeah, will do. Thank you for having me. All right. What do you think of that? Do you enjoy that? Sounds pretty good, right? He's very bullish on Bitcoin mining. It's just quite wild to think what the second or third order effects might arise from proof of work. I've really enjoyed going down the Bitcoin mining rabbit hole over this last few months. And I've also got a film coming out soon. I've been making this film. Well, we're in editing now. We made this film over in Texas, Oklahoma. We even dipped into Louisiana. I think we also went into Arkansas, actually. But yeah, this film will be out. I think it's on March the 30th. Can't wait to get that to you. As I said, I'm in New York. If you want to come and join us for the live stream of the Rail Barefoot game tomorrow, it's 2.45 at PubKey. I'll be there with Danny and Jeremy. And also on Thursday, we've got WBD Live. If you want to get a ticket for that, head over to whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, see you all on Wednesday. Have a great week.